After standing in place for a half hour, the company was finally able to move with the rest of the regiment. They shuffled down the platform, squeezing between another regiment on one side and a burned-out building on the other, to emerge into a square. The whole city looks grey, like ash, Maurice thought. The bright fall sunlight only accentuated the burn marks and the craters in the streets. The regiment trooped into a huge open building that looked like a massive barn. Long tables ran the length of it, and men went to the far end to line up for a meal. Maurice sat down across from Hilo. Taras was beside him, and young Olesh, not the youngest man in the company, but with a remarkable baby face with full cheeks and not a trace of facial hair, on the other side. The thin Boris Kozak sat across the table from him. He was a thin man in his mid-twenties, like Maurice, but from a village far from the front lines, hundreds of kilometers east of Kiev. I love this American ham, Maurice said. Beside a slice of ham taken from a can was a scoop of buckwheat porridge called kasha and a spoonful of canned peas, all supplied by the British and Americans, he thought. What a difference from the beginning of the war. Mikhailo could not stop talking about the Finns. Do you know we lost five times as many men in 1939 as the Finns did, he said again. The USSR sent everything they had into Karelia. Tanks, men, ships, planes, everything. The Finns gave up a few kilometers of territory. And now they're supplied by the Germans. German guns, tanks, planes, everything. His voice dropped and he leaned closer to the others. I hear they have ghost soldiers that can go through snow and ice to kill Russians. Those were just men in white uniforms and skis, Maurice scoffed. Don't believe every old wives' tale you hear. They're still very tough fighters, and the snow is going to be very deep. That's going to be a killer for us, just as it was for the Germans in 1942, said young Olish. It's September, said Serhii Kovai, who had come with Olish from western Ukraine. The two had been inseparable in training camp and ever since. Maybe there won't be snow in Finland yet. There won't be any more snow in southern Finland than there is here in Leningrad, Maurice said. He took a big bite of his ham and let the others argue about how tough and unbeatable the Finns were. When he swallowed, he looked at the others around him, then down to the table to Sergeant Nikolaev. He was talking with the lieutenant, an earnest blonde Russian named Vasiliev. Good, Maurice thought. He won't hear me. The Red Army today isn't the same as the Red Army in 1941, he said. He knew he had to be careful not to give the men any idea that he had been in the Red Army in 1941. Now we have American food, British guns and cannons, American and British-made tanks, American trucks, American cigarettes. He took out a cigarette and lit it. In 1941, the USSR had next to nothing. No food, bad uniforms. Boots wore off the soldiers' feet as they were retreating. He lifted his foot onto the bench to show off his new American-made boot with leather foot and canvas upper. Look at that. Not as good as what the officers have, but much better than they used to be.
Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you today from the Red Beard Studio, located on the traditional territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, also called Ottawa. And today I'm assisted by Daisy the Puppy. You might hear her in the background. That opening story was an excerpt from Walking Out of War, Volume 3 of the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian named Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army from 1941 to 1945. I included that passage because it indicates what the average Red Army soldier thought about the prospect of fighting Finland. And the reputation in the Red Army and beyond about the capabilities of the Finnish fighters. This was a reputation that was created in the Winter War of 1939 to 1940. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. This is the first in a bonus series of of episodes for Patreon patrons and other supporters of the show. It will be three episodes, released about a week apart. This first bonus episode, however, is generally available, but parts two and three will only be available to Patreon supporters at the $3 per month level and up. The topic, the Winter War of 1939 to 1940 that pitted the USSR with its army of three quarters of a million men, 2,500 tanks, 3,900 aircraft against Finland's army of 340,000 troops, 32 tanks, and 114 combat aircraft. Finland and its role in World War II are not well understood in the West. I remember in junior high seeing a map of Europe during World War II, which showed which countries were allies and which were Axis. The map showed Finland as being aligned with the Axis, but it wasn't colored in as darkly or as fully as Germany and Italy were. So I asked the teacher what that meant. I don't remember his actual words, that was a long time ago, but the idea was that Finland cooperated with Germany against the USSR. So that wasn't much detail, didn't give me a lot of understanding, and I had to look more deeply into it. And I'm not the only one with this lack of of, uh, details on the story. One reason for this gap in understanding may be that there simply aren't that many Finns in the West, or for that matter, in the world. Today, 2023 as I speak, the population of Finland is less than 6 million. And in 1939, at the so-called official outbreak of the Second World War, with the invasion of Poland, the population of Finland was only around 4 million. So, in this bonus series, we're going to look at a part of the Second World War that began before the launch of Operation Barbarossa, but 
which had a huge impact on the conflict between Germany and the USSR. That is, the Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union. The Winter War was the first of Finland's military conflicts in World War II, from November 1939 to March 1940. Then there was the Continuation War between the same two combatants from June 1941 to June 1944, and the Lapland War, when Finland drove German forces out of its territory in the autumn of 1944. And we'll get to those conflicts in later episodes, probably regular episodes, but and not Bonus episodes, but no promises yet. The Winter War, the first phase of Finland's military participation in World War II, began on November 30, 1940, less than two months after the USSR completed its occupation of eastern Poland in cooperation with its ally, Germany. See the first bonus episode for details on the war in Poland. Now, this is a period in the war that's very different from the common view of constant fighting and bombing, advancing and retreating. In the West, this period was called the Phony War. When Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, its allies, that's Poland's allies, Britain and France, made noise and scolded Germany. They sent stern letters. They even declared war. But they didn't actually do much. They didn't defend Poland. On September 7th, so a week after the invasion, France launched a limited offensive into the Saarland, the valley east of its border along the Rhine River. The original plan for this invasion had called for 40 divisions, but depending on which source you follow, they sent either 10 or 11 divisions. And they crossed the border near Saarbrücken, which means bridge over the Saar River. They met little resistance because 90% of the German army was busy invading Poland. So the French captured several towns with no resistance at all. They lost four tanks to mines and overall had some 2,000 casualties. On September 21st, after the Polish government had collapsed, the French withdrew behind their border defenses of the Maginot Line. An important thing to keep in mind as we go through this is that at this time, so the fall of 1939, the non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, better known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, was in effect. They were not fighting each other. They pretended not to be enemies. When, um, after the Germans invaded Poland, about two weeks later, on September 17th, the USSR also invaded Poland from the east side. The two invaders met at the city of Brest-Litovsk in Poland and agreed to a fourth partition of Poland. A few weeks later, the Winter War began when the USSR invaded Finland. But why? Why did they do this? Well, to understand this, we need to understand the historical context. And to understand that, we have to look at the history of Finland as a nation. So let's fire up the Wayback Machine and set it for a few centuries. Whew. Okay, so Finland... Um, from about the 12th century until 1809, most of what we now call Finland was ruled by Sweden. Then, after a war between Russia and Sweden in 1809, 
the area we now call Finland became a province of Imperial Russia. As national feeling grew across Europe in the 19th century, as uh, different nationalities claimed their own identity and uh, forged their own nation states, the growth of Finnish nationalism ran up against imperial Russification policies. So throughout the 19th century, uh, there were periods of tolerance of Finnish culture by the Russian governors, uh, alternating with periods of extreme repression. This tension culminated in the assassination of the Russian governor of Finland in 1904. Then the Russian Revolution came along and led to the independence of Finland. Lenin, after taking power, initially supported Finland's independence because, well, he didn't have much choice at that point. He was pretty busy with the Russian Revolution and the Civil War. That's enough on anyone's plate. Anyway, in 1917... As an independent nation, the Finns selected a German prince as their first king, but that plan imploded when Germany surrendered at the end of World War I. Thus, Finland was established as a republic. That was followed by a civil war, the Reds versus the Whites in Finland. The Whites won under the military leadership of Baron Karl Gustav Emil Mannerheim. He would, by 1939, be the commander-in-chief of the Finnish Armed Forces. Then came what was called the Kinship Wars. Uh, Finland tried to claim White Karelia. So it's now part of Russia, but it's the area north and east of Lake Ladoga, up to the White Sea, roughly. In 1920, Finland and the USSR signed the Treaty of Tartu, establishing its border. By this time, Finland was a very progressive republic. It was the first country in Europe and the third in the world to have full suffrage for all adult women. It was also the first country with a woman cabinet minister in 1926. During the First World War, so just backing up just a bit, Imperial Germany supported the underground Finnish nationalist movement with secret military training for Finnish volunteers. This became known as the Jaeger movement. Jaeger is Finnish for hunter, and I apologize for if I mispronounce that. The graduates of this program returned to Finland to pass on their training and their skills to their fellow Finns. A large number of these uh, graduates, perhaps most of the military leaders of Finland during the Winter War, had at one time been Jaegers, including Pavel Tavella, who's going to uh, figure very prominently in the Winter War, as well as Major General Woldemar Hogland, Colonel Hanu Hanuksala, Major General Willio Tuompo, who was in charge of the uh, armed forces uh, of northern Finland, Lieutenant Colonel Pava Susiteval, and Major General Marty Wilenius. Again, my apologies for mangling any of those Finnish names. I haven't in my life known a whole lot of ethnic Finns, uh, a few names come to mind. Marty Kangas was a, a wonderful editor many years ago. And if you're listening, Marty, say hello. Now, let's advance to the late 1930s. A period of increasing tensions in North, Northern Europe, not just between the USSR and Finland, but also all the Baltic nations, what we call the Baltic nations today, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. 
they were coming under increasing pressure from the USSR to have so-called friendlier policies, friendlier to the communists and to the Soviets. The, the Soviets were pressuring them, and in many cases uh, funding and otherwise supporting um, politicians who were more favorable to Russian-slash-Soviet interests. For example, allowing military movement and military presence on their soil. So, uh, again, uh, as I said, Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. The UK and France demonstrated that their militaries just weren't ready for war with Germany and do not honor their promises to support Poland in case of war with Germany. On the high seas, though, the phony war got real. German U-boats started to sink British and French warships. And this is kind of, well, darkly amusing. The first submarine in the Second World War to be sunk was a British one, and it was sunk by another British submarine in a tragic case of mistaken identity. Anyway, the USSR invaded Poland on September 17th, occupying the country up to the Curzon Line, the boundary uh, agreed upon in the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact. On September 19th, the USSR blockaded Tallinn Harbour, the capital of Estonia. By the 28th, the Estonian government had signed a 10-year mutual assistance pact with the USSR, allowing, among other things, the Soviets to put 30,000 men on military bases in that country, in return for a promise to respect Estonian independence, a promise that is as reliable as Russian promises nine decades later. Meanwhile, the Red Army was massing on the borders of Latvia, by October, Latvia had also signed a 10-year non-aggression pact, allowing 25,000 Soviet troops on their territory. In October, Stalin offered the city of Vilnius, at the time considered part of Poland, to Lithuania. All he wanted in return was Soviet military bases in Lithuania. The Lithuanian government was understandably reluctant, but by October 10th, they had signed a 15-year pact with the USSR, and allowed up to 20,000 Red Army troops on their soil. And, secretly, they accepted Vilnius as their own city. What choice did they have? And these so-called negotiations continued with the Finns as well. The Soviets wanted to move the border in the Karelian Isthmus farther west to protect Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Stalin also wanted islands in the Gulf of Finland, between Finland and Estonia, for naval bases. In return, Stalin offered lands farther north, which had been ceded to the USSR in the Tartu Treaty of 1920. Mannerheim, the Finnish commander-in-chief, favored this shift in borders, but the Finnish government resisted, saying Finland is not for sale. As the Red Army moved into its new bases in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, an alarmed Finland began reinforcing its defenses along its border with the USSR especially what became known as the Mannerheim Line, across the Karelian Isthmus from Lake Ladoga to the Gulf of Finland, ranging from 12 kilometers to 50 kilometers, or um, 8 to 30 miles, behind the Russian border. Map 1 shows the Mannerheim Line in 1939. And it was not as solid as it might look in this picture, and as you can see, it also follows rivers, lakes, and, and other natural barriers. Remember, at this point, 
Germany and the Soviet Union are allies, sort of. So in October, Hermann Goering told the Finns to cooperate with the Soviets or there would be no further support from Germany. The Finns still resisted. On November 3rd, Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov said it was time to hand over the matter of Finnish concessions to the military. Then, on the 30th of November, 1939, as I said, just weeks after wrapping up its seizure of eastern Poland, the Red Army launches invasion of Finland. As expected, this came along the Karelian Isthmus west of Leningrad, as well as in central and northern Finland, even along the Arctic Ocean. So we turn to map two on the website or in the show notes showing the four main advance routes the Soviet Union would use to invade Finland. The Soviets brought in four complete well-equipped armies, up to 760,000 troops, along with as many as 5,000 tanks and nearly 4,000 combat aircraft. Facing them were a maximum of 340,000 Finnish troops, few of them professional soldiers. The Soviet strategy was to attack in four places simultaneously, destroy the Finnish forces at the border, and sweep to the capital, Helsinki. It was supposed to take three weeks max. Sound familiar? An invasion of another country upon which Russia has dubious historical claims that should be over in three weeks? The Isthmus invasion was conducted by the 7th Army under Army Commander 2nd Class Vesevolod Yakovlev. The 7th Army had nine full infantry divisions and four armored brigades. There were also uh, artillery regiments and three more armored brigades in reserve. Its objective was to take Finland's second largest city, Viipuri, now called Viborg, just across the border. Then they'd go north, seize Lopin Ranta, setting of the excellent Finnish crime series Border Town, and then west again toward Lati and finally drive on Helsinki, the capital. The second prong was to be the 8th Army under Division Commander Ivan Kaparov. Five infantry divisions and one light armored brigade would go around the north shore of Lake Ladoga into Ladoga Karelia and then drive westward, ultimately joining up with the 7th Army on its drive to, uh, to Helsinki. Farther north, the 9th Army under Mikhail Dukhanov with four divisions was to smash westward across the middle of Finland to the port of Ulu on the Gulf of Bothnia, splitting the country in two at its narrowest point. And then, on the shore of the Arctic Ocean, the 14th Army under Corps Commander Valerian, yes, that was his name, like the Roman Emperor, Valerian Frolov, consisting of two infantry divisions and one mountain division, was to coordinate it with the northern fleet to take over the Patsamo region of Finland. All of this was under the overall command of Army Commander 2nd Class Kirill Meretskov, commander of the Leningrad Military District. In comparison to this juggernaut, the Finnish defensive forces looked pathetic. In total, they had half the men of the Soviets, facing at least 2,500 tanks. The Finns had 32 against 3,000 aircraft. The Finnish Air Force had 114. Truly a David versus Goliath story. The attack began on November 30th, 1939. And to flip to the last page in this book, didn't you do that in high school? The Soviets got their asses kicked. 
So let's zoom in for this episode on Karelia. The Soviets' main thrust would be across the Karelian Isthmus, and there's that word I hate to have to say again. This is the most direct route to Helsinki, and it's the area that's most densely populated and has the most roads. But that's a relative concept, as we'll see. Commander Yakovlev brought the 7th Army of 120,000 infantry troops, 1,500 artillery guns, 1,400 tanks, and about 1,000 planes. They were supposed to be supported by Red Navy fleets in the Baltic Sea, but poor weather kept them out of the action for a good portion of this time. They did manage to shell a, uh, a Finnish port on the, along the Isthmus, along the uh, Gulf of Finland, uh, to almost no effect. So opposing them, the, the 7th Army, the Finns had 26,000 troops, 71 outmoded artillery pieces, and 29 anti-tank guns. 29 anti-tank guns against 1,400 tanks. This was the Army of the Isbeth, commanded by Lieutenant General Hugo Osterman. It had two main groups, the 11th Army Corps on the west side, led by Lieutenant General Harald Oquist, and the 3rd Army Corps under Major General Erich Heinrichs. So, what could the Finns do? Their commander-in-chief, Karl Mannerheim, came up with the idea to disperse the small Finnish army into tiny formations, scattered widely, so they wouldn't be seen by enemy intelligence. This strategy proved very effective. As mentioned, the Finns had spent the past months reinforcing their defenses, the Mannerheim line from Lake Ladoga west of the Gulf of Finland, varying from 12 to 50 kilometers from the border at the time. That wasn't its official name, by the way. Uh, but by the beginning of 1940, that's what it was called by the Finns and after their commander-in-chief, Karl Mannerheim. It was nowhere near the conceptually similar Maginot line on the French-German border. Those were concrete bunkers. But in Finland, these bunkers were spaced too far apart to offer crossfire protection against frontal attacks. There were also machine gun nests equipped with old model Maxim machine guns, the same kind my father-in-law, Maurice Burry, would use four years later when he was part of the Red Army. See my books, the Eastern Front Trilogy. Because it was a pretty sparse line and the Finns' resources were limited, especially compared to the Soviet Union's, the Finns made maximum use of natural defenses like rivers and lakes. And when the attack came, the Finns deployed small units ahead of the Mannerheim line in what they called delay positions to hinder and weaken the invaders as the defenders staged a fighting retreat to the fortifications. By fall 1939, Stalin had been summoning the Finnish government to negotiations, so-called, for a long time. This pressure to cede territory and its all a friendly government intensified as the months wore on, especially after the fall of Poland. Finnish government made conciliatory noises, but basically dug in its heels. It was not prepared to give up any territory. The pressure on Finland intensified on November 26th, when a Soviet border post was shelled overnight near the village of Menila. This was, surprise, a false flag operation carried out by the NKVD, Stalin's secret security force. Even though the Finns refused to fall for it and called for a joint investigation, the Soviets would continue to describe this false flag operation as Finnish provocation for decades, because 
it makes so much sense for a militarily tiny country to provoke a behemoth like the Soviet Union. Still, the Soviets renounced the non-aggression pact with Finland and severed diplomatic relations on November 28th. So, the first thing in the morning of November 30th, 1939, without a declaration of war, 21 Red Army divisions, nearly half a million men, crossed the border. The Red Air Force dropped leaflets on Helsinki, the Finnish capital. They read, You know we have bread. Don't starve. Soviet Russia will not harm the Finnish people. Their disaster is due to wrong leadership. Mannerheim and Kajander, the Prime Minister, Mannerheim and Kajander must go. After this, peace will come. End quote. That afternoon, the Red Air Force bombed Helsinki, destroying 50 buildings and killing 100 civilians. So much for not harming Finnish people. In response to international criticism at the murder of civilians, Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov said the Red Air Force was not bombing Finnish cities, but dropping humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid that destroyed 50 buildings and killed 100 people. As a result, um, the Finns called these huge incendiary cluster bombs the Red Air Force was using Molotov bread baskets. And later, the Finns called their improvised anti-tank explosives, which was a, a glass bottle filled with alcohol, kerosene, tar, and other flammable liquid, and with a rag for a fuse. They called that the Molotov cocktail. So that's the origin of the term, not what I assume was Molotov's actions during the Russian Revolution. One more political note before we get heavily into the action. On December 1st, Stalin's Soviet Union set up the Finnish Democratic Republic, a puppet communist government headed by Finnish Communist Party leader Otto Willy Kusinen. It was based in Terayoki, a town just across the border on the Karelian Isthmus, now called Zelenogorsk. This puppet government um, was called uh, informally the Terayoki government. It was reabsorbed into the USSR in 1940, and Otto Kusinen spent the rest of his days in the Soviet Union. took place on the Karelian Isthmus. In that sector, the Red Army had some 250,000 men, as I mentioned, thousands of tanks and aircraft, and the Finnish forces facing them were about half that, about 130,000, which still sounds like a lot of people. Following Mannerheim's strategy, and frankly, what else could they do? The Finns scattered small groups of men between the Mannerheim line and the border in small, well-camouflaged and hidden units. Using not really guerrilla tactics, because the terrain didn't really lend itself to guerrilla tactics, but something similar. They slowed the Soviet attack. It took the Soviets until December 4th to even cross the uh, narrowest distance, 12 kilometers, to get to the Mannerheim line. The first attacks came on the western side, aiming for the city of Vipuri, now in Russia and called Viborg, on a deep bay of the Gulf of Finland, and about 130 kilometers, or 81 miles, northwest of Leningrad. Two Finnish task forces of these dispersed guerrilla forces, about 
28,000 men, delayed the uh, advance of the Red Army for close to a week. You can see this on map three, where the main attacks in the Isthmus from the USSR into Finland. Note that front lines uh, advance eventually to the Mannerheim line. For example, near the village of Summa, two Soviet divisions were stymied for weeks by Finnish barbed wire, machine guns, and artillery. On December 17th, the Red Army tried a two-pronged attack. So this is three weeks into the attack, or the third week of the invasion. The Red Army tried a two-pronged attack, one on the east side and one on the west side of the village, but deep snow prevented the attacks from advancing on the far right of that uh, strategy. The 173rd Rifle Regiment tried to take a hill to the east of Summa. The defenders destroyed four of the six tanks involved before they got to the finish lines, and then they destroyed the other two from behind. Nearly all the company commanders and some senior officers were killed. Closer to this village, horses and trackers could not traverse the ground. It was too boggy, too wet. So the Soviet soldiers had to drag the heavy artillery themselves. And when they did this, uh, they kind of exposed themselves to enemy fire and were wiped out. A little bit farther to the east of that, uh, a village called Munasuo. Munasuo? Sorry again for my bad pronunciation. Anyway, near there, uh, Soviet tanks actually did penetrate the, uh, the defense lines about half a kilometer or around a quarter mile uh, past the Finnish defensive bunkers. Uh, but, well, in, tanks don't operate that well all by themselves. They need to be defended uh, by infantry. And here the infantry, the Soviet infantry, failed to show up. And thus, the Finns destroyed 23 of the 35 tanks. The Red Army finally reached the Mannerheim line in some places on December 6th, so that was a week, but did not break through. In fact, when they did reach the line, they were repulsed over and over again. This happened all along the border. Now, over and over again, how did the Finns manage to accomplish this? In short, by using every possible advantage they had, the terrain and their own abilities. The Finns obviously were intimately knowledgeable about the land they were defending. Their soldiers were citizens drawn from the local areas. They were acclimated. As uh, opposed to the Soviets, men who came from all over the Soviet Union. There were Ukrainian forces, in fact. The Finns were skilled skiers and dressed for the conditions. Whereas, for example, some Soviet units, uh, Soviet units were issued skis, but didn't know how to use them. So didn't. They just ended up wading through deep snow. I think that would be almost as bad as trying to wade through waist-deep mud. I don't know. I have waded through, <laughs> through waist-deep snow in my life, and I have uh, fortunately not had the um, occasion to have to wade through deep mud. But anyway, the Finns knew how to deal with those conditions. 
their soldiers had white coveralls over their uniforms so they could better hide in the snowy surroundings. In fact, according to The Winter War, published by Captivating History, a book um, I think it was aimed at younger readers, but anyway, it was a good resource. Uh, Finnish civilians donated white linen sheets and blankets, which the army made into white coveralls for the soldiers. The Soviets, astoundingly, were not issued with camouflage gear, at least not at first. Their tactics and their equipment were not suited to the terrain nor the winter conditions. They thought their massive numbers would easily overwhelm the the Finns, but... The narrow roads, the forest cover, and the number of rivers, lakes, fens, and other wetlands restricted their movement. The terrain, in fact, tended to concentrate the Red Army into small areas. This made them more vulnerable to the Finnish defenders, who could concentrate their artillery firing. Another Red Army tactic was to send successive waves of infantry against the Finnish defenses as we see 83 years later. This was also relatively easy for dug-in defenders to repel. The Finnish tactic often would be to form small groups who would sneak through the snowy forests, often on skis. As I mentioned, they were skilled skiers. It was, you know, just the way you got around in a snowy uh, terrain with no roads. An effective tactic would be to isolate Red Army units into small groups and encircle them in what they called Motti, analogous to the German term for cauldron, but smaller. The word Motti in Finnish actually means a cubic meter of cut firewood. So the Finns would isolate a Motti and either destroy it or take it prisoner. The Finnish soldiers also displayed extraordinary courage with tactics like pushing logs between tanks' bogie wheels or you know, into the treads, or throwing Molotov cocktails at them. Both these tactics will disable a tank, the former by you know, just destroying the or tearing apart the treads. Um, the latter, not by blowing a hole in the armor, a, a Molotov cocktail, a glass bottle filled with kerosene is not going to do that. But what it does is it spreads burning fluid over the surface of the tank. And this makes the interior unbearably hot. The crew inside has a choice. Get out into enemy fire or cook. But both these tactics, the the logs and the uh, Molotov cocktails, require the attacker to get very close. This exposes them to fire. And a lot of Finnish defenders died that way. Another tactic the Finns used would be to mine lake and river rice. That is, plant explosives under the ice on lakes and rivers, then detonate it as the Red Army and its tanks and other vehicles tried to cross. Now, to be honest, the Red Army really should have seen that coming. Let's cross this lake, which exposes us, because there's no cover, there's no trees. What could go wrong? And of course, you know, there's the basic idea, the strategy that you're a defender. You can dig in behind some kind of obstruction, uh, or in some camouflage point and fire at unsuspecting uh, enemy advancing toward you. The Finns' major limitation was, yeah, it's down to their small numbers. Sometimes, even when they encircled a Motti, the Soviets could hold out for days, weeks, even months 
and this would tie down the Finnish forces guarding and surrounding them. So that's what was going on on the western side. Uh, the move on Viipuri was bogged down. Uh, further to the east, the town of Kivanimi, I hope that I pronounced that close to correctly, uh, the 7th Red Army under Yakovlev himself tried to cross the swift Taipala River, which flows into Lake Ladoga. So that's a very far right side of this particular part of the advance. Now, they had brought pontoon battalions to get across the river, but they arrived late. That delayed the attack and gave the Finns more time to prepare. On the night of December 7th, a week after the initial invasion, with half their artillery ammunition held up behind the lines, the 7th Army launches attack with pontoon bridges and amphibious T-38 tanks. But the river's strong current dragged the tanks downstream. Then the Finnish searchlights lit up the river and the artillery opened up. They destroyed five of the nine pontoons. Only a few Soviet tanks made it across, and then they were stymied by the steep banks on the far side. Only about 30 soldiers made it across the river and had to surrender. But Commander Yakovlev reported back to the high command that he had succeeded in securing a bridgehead with two full battalions. He also ordered further attacks, but his subordinate officers refused because they knew it would be suicide. So here, here was your choice. A charge into enemy fire in, a, in an impossible attack or get shot by the NKVD. Hmm. Anyway, because uh, this attack on Tepale was not working, Yakovlev recommended to the high command, to his superiors, that, yeah, this really, I, you know, I've got this uh, bridgehead, but we really ought to concentrate uh, further west on Viipuri. Farther east, though, close to the shore of Lake Ladoga, the Red Army did manage to cross the swift-flowing Taipala River. The Red Army attempted crossing at three points. The trouble for them was that their side of the river, so the southern side, was pretty flat, mostly farm fields that offered no cover, no protection, no trees around. But the other side of the, of the river was steeper and did offer cover. So, as the Red Army approached the southern bank, they were exposed. And on the far bank was hiding the Finnish 10th Division, commanded by Colonel Viljo Kalpila. They shelled the Soviet forces from under the cover of the trees. The 19th Rifle Regiment of the Red Army lost nearly every single officer, and so many enlisted men that it was withdrawn from the whole fight. Still, the Red Army did manage to cross the river on the eastern side of the Karelian Isthmus. The Finnish advance forces withdrew back to their main defensive line, that is, the Mannerheim line. The Red Army crossed the Taipala River. Now, remember, this is December in Finland. So while the river is open water because it's moving fast, it's freezing cold. Also, one other point about uh, fighting in Finland in December is that the days are very short. Uh, the sunrise was around 8.30, sunset around 3.30 in the afternoon. So you have about six hours of daylight to operate in. Finnish Commander-in-Chief Mannerheim said about the fighting on the Tepala River, 
quote, I did not think my men were so good or that the Russians could be so bad, end quote. It was only the overwhelming numbers of the Red Army soldiers that allowed them to solidify that bridgehead on the northwest bank of the river, which took them until December 12th, so two weeks to solidify their hold on the far bank, and then from there launch a larger attack in the sector. But now we're going to shift our focus away from the Karelian Isthmus and look north of Lake Ladoga. Here, Finnish defending forces were far sparser than in the Isthmus. There was nothing like the Mannerheim line, crude and uh, sparse as it was. Instead, the few defenders in this sector had to make even smarter use of natural defenses like rivers and lakes. Along this 350-kilometer or 218-mile front were the 4th Army Corps, commanded by Major General Juho Heiskanen. They faced the Soviet 8th Army, which had two corps comprising 75,000 men, more than 150 tanks and 500 artillery pieces. They also had more than 100 planes, while the Finns had a single fighter squadron. The Red Army's plan was to advance into Finland north of Lake Ladoga, taking the town of Sortavala in 10 days, then swing south around the western shore of the lake to attack the Mannerheim line from the rear. This is shown in map 4, labeled Ladogo Karelia. It's the region north of Lake Ladoga, and it shows where the 8th Army was invading. Uh, right in the middle is Kala, which is the river front. Um, and behind it, just west of it, is the village of Luimola, uh, an important junction. Uh, near the very top of this particular map is the town of Ilomatsi. And then just south of Kola is the town of Sariyarvi, as also the lake Sariyarvi. Around the town of Toivaljarvi, then in Finland and now in Russian Republic of Karelia, Finnish ski forces again used the Moti tactic to kill 4,000 to 5,000 Soviet soldiers, wound 5,000 more, destroy 60 tanks and armored vehicles, and capture up to 30 artillery pieces. Finnish losses were about 100 men killed, 250 wounded, and 150 captured. Farther north, the 1st Rifle Corps, with two divisions, would also attack a village called Ilomansi. So you can see the map on the uh, show page and the website. The attack went well from the Soviet point of view. The 1st Rifle Corps pushed the Finnish forces back and took the strategically important road-rail junction of Suljarvi by December 2nd. A Finnish counterattack the next day failed. An eyewitness on the Finnish side, Erko Palolampi, described it this way, quote, Tanks rattled onwards on the roads and also tried entering into the forest. Firing is intense, and then somebody starts to shout that the tanks are now coming from behind. They have breached through. The man's eyes are round with fear. Another man sees his terror, and the shout spreads from soldier to soldier. Nothing can stop it now. Tanks are coming. Tanks have breached through. Men start to run without hearing the commands and curses of their officers. Panic spreads. Fear grips more and more of the t companies. Everybody has only one thought, to escape the terrible tanks. 
a young man tries to jump into a passing sleigh shouting now the men of finland are no match for the ruskies tanks have broken through and troops are routed tanks will kill us all even two or three leagues later there were still scared men wandering around the loimola area looking for their companies end quote that's from an excellent book and um, all my sources are listed in the show notes and on the website so take a look uh, i recommend if you're interested in the winter war uh, the book finland at war is a is a great place to start now in this sector the finns fell back to a new defensive line behind the kola river a very small river as narrow as two meters or six feet across in some places but they had to hold there because if the Red Army got past the river to the village of Loimola, they would reach a crossroads, giving them you know, unfettered access uh, to get around the, the lake and then behind the Mannerheim line. So the Finns had to stop them. And to do this, they had a minute fighting force compared to the attackers. But still, they held the line. As in the Karelian Isthmus, the accurate artillery fire decimated Soviet tanks. On December 14th, a company of the same unit that had retreated from the Suryarvi sector counterattacked across that little Kola River, destroying five Soviet tanks and capturing two anti-tank guns, three machine guns, and other equipment that they could put to good use. This was just in time because the Red Army was attempting an encirclement farther north. Once again, the Finns took troops from the front line at the Kola and blocked the assault. By December 17th, this new threat was retreating. It was in this sector, that's Karelia, north of Lake Ladoga, that the White Death began to earn his reputation. Simo Haya, apologies if that's not the right way to pronounce the name, served with the 6th Company of the 34th Infantry Regiment of the Finnish Armed Forces, and it was the deadliest sniper who ever lived. Born in 1905 in the village of Kieskissen in the Vipuri district near the Russian border, Simo Haya was an expert marksman by the age of 17 when he joined the Finnish Civil Guard. The officers noted his ability at sniping, and so in 1927, enrolled him in specialist sniper training. In 1939, Simo Haya brought his own rifle with him to the Kola front. He preferred to use the standard metal sights on the barrel of the rifle rather than telescopic sight. He said it allowed him to stay lower behind cover, and also, and this is supported by other snipers, a scope could reflect light and expose his position to the enemy not something a sniper wants to happen. In a three-day period in December 1939, he killed 51 enemy soldiers. He didn't keep track, but his buddies did. Still, the officers couldn't believe the success rate, and they assigned an official observer to follow him. When Haya returned from a particular difficult mission and was close to 200 successes, he was promoted to junior sergeant but his comrades gave him his lasting title, the White Death. His reputation spread beyond Finland. On February 17, 1940, he received an honorary 
uh, Seiko M2830 rifle from a Swedish businessman named Eugene Johansson. By this point, he had shot 219 enemy soldiers. So, February 17, 1940. That's uh, about 12 weeks into the war. Then, on March 6th, he was wounded by an explosive bullet that shattered, actually tore away his lower left jaw. He was assumed dead until a comrade saw his leg twitching among a pile of dead soldiers. They brought him to a hospital with, according to the men who brought him in, quote, half his face missing, end quote. The shot had destroyed his left upper jaw, most of his lower jaw, and most of his left cheek. But he did regain consciousness after 10 surgeries on March 13th, the day the Winter War ended. He spent 14 months recovering from his wounds and endured another 16 operations. But that's getting ahead of the story. For now, let's pause here until the next bonus episode when we'll return our attention to the northern part of the Winter War. So, for now, we'll say goodbye. I want to thank everyone for listening to Beyond Barbarossa and this special bonus episode, which uh, is free. It's part of the main feed. But the follow-up episodes where we delve into the rest of the Winter War and take a look at the far northern operations, those will be restricted to supporters through uh, Patreon or the Podbean app. If you are already a supporter, I want to thank you very much. Your financial support goes to better auto equipment, research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode or any of the others, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in the history of World War II. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, and especially of this episode, please see the maps that I've posted on the, uh, on the website, beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at writtenword.ca or contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. As always, the original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. Thank you.